Welcome to The Sound of the Hound. Series 2. The podcast about the early days of recorded sound. In it, we talk about the recording pioneers and artists who created the modern music industry over a 100 years ago. We look at the sometimes ridiculous lengths they went to to capture sound and the technology they used in order to do it. We come from the point of view of spirited amateurs. Yes, we're very much armchair enthusiasts. And we play a little scratchy music along the way. This podcast comes to you with the support of the EMI Archive Trust, the Music and Technology Archive. This is The Sound of the Hound. I'm James Hall. And I'm Dave Holly. Dave. Welcome to The Sound of the Hound. Series 2. The podcast about the early days of recorded sound. In it, we talk about the recording pioneers and artists who created the modern music industry over a 100 years ago. We look at the sometimes ridiculous lengths they went to to capture sound and the technology they used in order to do it. We come from the point of view of spirited amateurs. Yes, we're very much armchair enthusiasts. And we play a little scratchy music along the way. This podcast comes to you with the support of the EMI Archive Trust, the Music and Technology Archive. This is The Sound of the Hound. I'm James Hall. And I'm Dave Holly. Dave. Peach Melba. Yep. Melba Toast. Yep. 1970s, that says to me. Din- <laughs> dinner parties with my parents. Slice of thin toast. Spread with pate, usually. Melba and- sauce. Melba sauce? No, don't know Melba sauce. It's a reduction of, of, of raspberry and redcurrant. Why, you ask, am I listing? I'm guessing it's something <laughs> to do with Melba. There you go. Today, we are telling the story of a, an opera singing dame. Superstar. Superstar. Housewife from Sydney. So, so famous. Housewife from Melbourne. From Melbourne. So famous, she has foodstuffs, Victorian foodstuffs, named after her. Mel- Nanny Melba. They were all invented by a chef called Escoffier. I love the um, way I love the, the the fact the chef's name has got the word scoff in it. Escoffier. <laughs> and I think he he was at the Ritz. I think it's a boy in London, that's right. And he, he created all of these in honour of Nellie Melba, who was probably the biggest diva of all in the first third of the twentieth late late. 19th and first third of the 20th century. Absolutely. I think that the story we're going to tell today is one of it. She was an out-and-out diva. But it's also the story of someone who, who came to recording quite late in her career because she's had a full start, hadn't she? Yeah. And she'd done some early recordings and hated them and resisted, resisted, resisted. And so today's story is really how, how Fred and our friends at the Gramophone Company got her on board reasonably late in her career and she suddenly became even bigger. Yeah. But my God, the, st- <laughs> the stories. Yeah, persuading her was 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 uh, an exercise oh, in itself. Yes. It was a lot of work from a lot of people. It, she almost broke the gramophone company. I mean, not not financially, but kind of spiritually. In mentally needed, and emotionally. Broke their yeah. wills. She really yeah. did. So what do you know about her, her backstory? Well, she's not called Nellie Melba when she's, she's born. She's Helen Porter Mitchell. Helen Mitchell, born 1861 in Australia, in Melbourne. And... She's the daughter of a guy called David Mitchell, who's a builder, very successful builder. He's not an architect, and he's not a builder. He's somewhere between the two. And you know, he's, he's a Scot immigrant to Australia. Scottish immigrant to to Australia. She's the eldest of seven children, and she takes to singing early. Um, she's well praised for it at school. She goes to a, a, a Presbyterian ladies' college. So it's quite a wealthy family. Not, oh, yes. We're this, not talking Chaliapin or, no. or, 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 you know, born in poverty. And the kind of building her father did, uh, Melbourne has a series of sort of grand 19th century buildings. It's and he beautiful, built, but yes. Yeah, he built lovely. most of them. Wow, yeah. okay. So her father was very encouraging of her doing this as a hobby. I think he changes his mind when she decides to make it her career. Her life sort of spirals um, or, or pivots when, when she's 20, when her mother dies. Her mother dies and one of her sister dies in quick succession in 1881 when she's 20. And her father is desolate and he moves the family from Melbourne, which is down on the south bit of uh, mm. New South Wales, up to the top bit, towards the top bit of Queensland to okay. a, a, a small place called Mackay, which was the centre of a new sugar plantation business in in um, Australia at the time, and he was taken up there to build a sugar mill. 
she then meets somebody there. Is this her? Is this the Charles Armstrong? Chef? This is yeah. Char- what's he? he has a very grand name, does he? Charles Nesbitt Frederick Armstrong. Good, nice name. And Strong. he was, he was um, the youngest son of Sir Andrew Armstrong, uh, an Irish baronet. Now I'm an Armstrong, my mother's side. I hope, given what we're about to find out happens, I hope it wasn't any. Well, <laughs> so what happens, Dave? I'm slightly giving it away. Yeah, she she, she marries him at 21. So this is a month, a, a year after um, she's left. Melbourne. Uh, Melbourne and her mother's died and her sister's died and she, I, I wonder if she, she's slightly on the rebound yeah. into I know people did marry young in those days mm. she marries them and they they have one child relatively quickly in 1883 when she's 22 um, but it wasn't a success the marriage and it quickly wasn't a success rumours were that she was very bored of marriage I suspect he wanted the little lady at home not singing on a stage and there are reports that he was a bit free with his hands, that he, he was he beat her. Yeah. I can't substantiate that other than th- th- there's rumours of it on a couple of, of, of websites. Also, she was up in the sugar plantation. I mean, I'm, I'm, not a huge amount went on up there, I imagine. No, I, in fact, I was looking at property there today just to see what, what, would, it be like, yeah, what would it be look like <laughs> if I moved to Mackay in Queensland. And? It's, t- I mean, it's on the coast. It's quite, it's quite um, pretty, but it's... it's but 130, t- 40 years ago? Tiny, and it yeah. was tiny then. You know, it, it's, it's really tiny. That's good um, research, Dave. I also found out there was a race riot. So they imp- to, to tend the fields, they imported lots of South Sea Islanders. Right. And in the 1880s, so yeah. w- the time we're when talking about there, at yeah. the moment, there was, there was a riot and, and the, uh, the South Sea Islanders took umbrage at something. It, it wasn't clear what, but I, su- I suspect they were treated pretty badly. Yeah. They rebelled. The police came in and murdered two or three of them. Blimey. And um, a lot of them and several English people found that, uh, white English slash Australian people uh, found themselves in Nick. Oh, my um, God. So that was, so that was sort of the, the, the scene of Mackay. So it was a bit of middle of nowhere. Um, it sounds like a terrible place to be in many ways. I mean, yeah. I'm sure it was very beautiful. But So no wonder she had thoughts of, of singing and escaping. And, and when she split up with her husband, he, he interestingly, he takes the child. So they have this boy called George who was born in 83. They separate it later on that year, like within weeks of her having... He's left by the end of the year. So within, within 10 weeks... So you've got two weeks in October, four weeks in November, four weeks of Christmas. Within those 10 weeks, he's gone... And he's relocated to Texas, taking the baby. With, I love the way you say eighty-three, like it's like it's eighteen eighty-three. Eighteen eighty-three. Yeah, yeah. Um, back in eighty-three. Yeah. Um, so okay, but her career does take off nonetheless in Australia a bit, doesn't? Yeah, it? Yeah, she goes back to Melbourne straight away, and I think her father wasn't very approving of this. That she wants to make a, a living at it. Yeah. And she goes back to back to Melbourne and um, and takes some lessons there. And then her father actually gets a posting. He he's you know he's, he's a bigger fish than we probably are kind of letting on. But he gets selected for a role within the Commonwealth to come over and do some work in London. Ah, oh, so that's when she makes. And that's her move to that's her move to Europe. And then she spends the next while kind of zigzagging between different bits of Europe as she as she tries to break through in the music industry. Because she had a gig in in, in, in Piccadilly, in, in, in Princess Hall, which was a concert hall in Piccadilly, in 1886. So that she's 25 years old at that point. But no, yeah. one, no one cared, really. And she no. sought work from Sir Arthur Sullivan, from Gilbert and Sullivan. Yeah. And again... Nothing really. Nothing happens. really happens. Nothing really happens. She's doing. She's doing lessons, but but not really breaking through. And, and this is this is the amazing thing. Where do great superstars come? You know, there's a, the famous scene in in Mark Lewison's book about the Beatles, where Paul McCartney. They've been they've been they've been to Hamburg, yeah. and then they come back, and he's got a job uh, in a in a factory, and he's doing quite well. You know, he's a smart lad, and he's got. That they think he's got lots of potential, and he starts sort of saying, "Oh, I can't do a gig then, and I can't do a gig then because I'm, I'm working." And Lennon yeah. says, "You're either in or you're out," and he, he's out. But that seemed like a really important decision. To I'm going to have a go at this. But you need someone to almost yank you out. Don't yeah. You? But she she's failing in London, and she decides to go to Paris. I mean, that's what supreme, supreme a, confidence. A single woman in Victorian yeah. times. Yeah. To have the confidence to go over to Paris. But she's obviously not scared of travelling because she's done a lot of it. I mean, that could be something to do with it, couldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so she goes to Paris and she, 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 she becomes a pupil of Matilda Marchesi, or Mathilde Marchesi. Yeah, I think this is her lucky break. This is her lucky break, who apparently on seeing 
uh, or on hearing Melba sing, and she'd taken on the name Melba from Melbourne back in Australia. Mon Dieu, I have myself a star at last, yeah. is what uh, Marchesi said. And it was in Paris where she was allowed to sing uh, the mad scene from Ophelia's Hamlet, uh, uh, from Hamlet, the mad scene of Ophelia, obviously, in front of Ambroise Thomas, or Thomas. What nationality was he? We don't I know. I have a clue. No. Uh, who wrote the opera? Ah. I didn't know that. So she she sang the mad scene in front of the composer. So she was getting access. She was getting big roles. Yeah. I think I think Marchese is really key because she she was a singer herself. She gives lessons. She gave she, lessons to Cal in the Calve episode. She gave she? lessons to Calve, and she also gave lessons to um, Melba. And she's the one that suggests Melba should change her name. So at this point, she still oh, was it. So she was. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I've got ahead of myself. No, no, no. Seems... But but it was during this time she changed the name. But it was it was at Marchese's suggestion apparently. Right. And and so she drops. Helen and becomes Nelly. That must be the diminutive. Nelly, Helen, yeah, yeah. yeah. And she drops Mitchell and becomes Melba, Nelly Melba. But I think there's just one interesting thing to, just before because she gets introduced to an agent called oh, uh, Maurice Strakosch. Yes. Now he's interesting. He's got connections to one of the other great singers of this era, Adelina Patti. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Who, the, who, who, who we hear about elsewhere in this in this series, but. He's a bit of an impresario, isn't he? He's kind of the man to know. Absolutely. And she, he, he sort of becomes her agent, he manager her slash agent, agent. And he gives her a 10-year contract at a 1,000 francs a year. Yeah. Now, I don't have my calculator here, but that sounds a lot because it's got lots of zeros. It's, it sounds a lot, doesn't it, because he's got three zeros. But and surely in those days you didn't get much. <laughs> it turns out it wasn't very it much. Was- because very soon after, she, she gets a better offer, doesn't she? And she realises that Strakosh, for all the zeros he's dangled at her, He's not actually that generous at all, but she's contractually ab- obliged, isn't she? That's the problem. Yeah. So she gets she gets offered a contract at the Théâtre de, de la Monnaie in Brussels, in Brussels. for three thousand francs. So three times Strakos. No, no, amount. no. Three thousand a month. A month. Yeah. She's gone from one thousand right. a year to three. He's really screwed her. Okay. Yeah. But but and she's in despair because she wants to go. It's a it's a good part of course in in Brussels. It's not quite Paris. It's certainly not London. But it's a good part. And but Strakos get he gets an injunction to, to stop, stop her. her. He gets to stop her, and then something very convenient <laughs> happens, which makes me think, "Hmm." Strakos dies. He dies, dies suddenly, very suddenly, very very suddenly, and uh, uh, she's obviously then released from her contract with Strakos, and she's able to make her her um, operatic debut. Four days after his death, so he he, di- he dies on the 9th of October, eighty seven. Yeah, as you'd say, eighteen eighty seven. And she makes her debut under a new contract. Yeah, on the twelfth of October. Yes, and she's got to f- travel from Paris to Belgium and she in that mess time. About. Yeah, and and yes, probably, and probably dabbing her eyes dabbing as she, as, as she oh, leaves yeah. Paris. So she made it. This is yeah. how she made her yeah. name for us. She then comes back to the UK and makes her London debut in May eighteen eighty eight. Um, I think in Lucia di Lalamour, Lamamour, right. the opera. Should we just hear a bit of Pat, of, um, of Melba before we carry on? Yeah. This is her singing La Traviata from 1904. was Nelly Melba singing from La Traviata. Yeah. So, Dave, what happens next? Well, she's had a great success in Covent Garden. She she um, is big in London. She's already had some success in Paris. And really, for the next 10 years, she goes through what I think Neil Tennant called the imperial, the imperial phase, phase yes. where everything she did t- turned to gold. She just sings across Europe, sings in America, is very, very successful wherever she goes. She also has a royal dalliance during this time. This is with, with Prince Philippe, the Duke of Orléans. The, of Duke Orléans. of Orléans. Orléans. Yes. And he, he's interesting because he, he, although it was the French Republic at that point, so there was no King of France, he was next in line 
to the throne of France should it ever be restored. Right. So he's he's a bit of, you know, Euro trash aristocracy. And he takes her under his wing, doesn't he? They well, go I'm around, sure the, around the under around his the wing and under his yes, golden, many other ways. Wing. And they they um I think she she goes across to sing for the Tsar in St. Petersburg. Yes. And they crisscross Europe together, socializing, having fun. I think she does some performances and he's with her. And it's picked up. It's picked up in the press. Very interestingly, her husband, back to old Charlie Armstrong, who's oh, in still Texas. Married, they? They're still married. Right. But he, he sues for divorce on the back of oh, what, seeing all this money yeah, rolling in. So yeah. How interesting. She did the lead role in um, Pagliacci as soon as it was written. And the, the composer, Leon Cavallo, said that she, he'd never seen the role played so well. I mean, so she was really making waves, wasn't she? Yeah, and it's the whole of that ten years. She, she's um, she's just successful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's so eighteen ninety five. Something happened. She then starts to record some cylinders, doesn't she? Yeah, uh, I don't think she considered it a terribly successful. She, I don't think she did. She was in New York, and they, these were phonograph cylinders, and they didn't really come to anything, did That's they? That's right. This is the Bettini Phonograph Lab in yeah. New York. They were never released. She, she didn't like them. She said. There's a quote, isn't there? She said, there? never again, she said. And she said it was a, a, a scratching, screeching result. Yeah. There's, there's a guy, a reporter from Phonoscope, which, which must have been an early sort of billboard-type magazine. Yeah. He got to hear them. He said the next, the next cylinder that he was listening to was labelled Melba and was truly wonderful. The phonograph reproducing a wonderful voice in a marvellous manner, especially the high notes, which soared away above the staff and were rich and clear. So, well, that sounds lovely. But what she said... Don't when when she heard them. Don't tell me I sing like that, or I shall go away and live on a desert island. Yeah, she's a bit sensitive about she's the recording really voice. And apparently they were destroyed. Is that right? Yeah, never released. Never released. Not available anywhere any, uh, at the moment now. And I think the Met in New York. They also made some live recordings on the on the on their Mapleson yeah. cylinders, which were which I think do do exist still. Yes, don't they? they do. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's a whole other series. Mapleson. Yes. Um, this, this sort of brings us so, so Charlie Armstrong sues for divorce in the mid 90s when she's dallying with um, Prince Philippe they they split up Prince Philippe and her um, I think Prince Philippe runs away actually does he uh, he doesn't like the uh, the attention I guess I guess she was so high profile yeah. you know, the thing she did hit the news but 1900 end of the last century beginning of the new century she divorces Charlie Armstrong son is still in Texas, sons in Texas. We, you know, he's been he's been brought up by the father. Yeah, she's at the top of her game. At this point, the record, the um, Fred Geisberg and the Gramophone Company, their eyes are looking for great big stars. They're obviously trying to track um, Caruso down at this point to yeah. succeed. They go after Calve, probably the biggest fish in the pond. Is Melba either Caruso? But he wasn't quite at that stage when they got him. Yeah. It's it's Melba. It is Melba. She was the leading soprano at Covent Garden at the time. Wasn't yes, she? I mean she was she was huge. The, she, they, there were a few warning shots that she was a bit of a diva. Um, she'd already ref- in pre- previously in her career quit London and said she'd never return because she didn't get the role she wanted. Her role was a bit small, she thought, yeah, and but- she had slight disdain for her audience. Yes, she she's apparently she said sing a muck. Well, that, that yeah, was on a tour of Australia. It's all they understand. That was the tour of Australia. Yeah, yeah. I mean, rule number one, surely. Well, you don't patronise your audience. Not, you don't get quoted on it anyway. Well, you don't do. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, she's a tough-nosed Aussie woman yeah. who, who spent at least a part of her time fairly in the outback or at least in, in, in you know, yeah. distant climes. Yeah. And she's travelled across... Europe. She's dragged, put herself into a very male-dominated industry. And she's she, made it. I mean, credit and she's to her. made it. And she's, credit to her. She's, she's also phenomenally successful money-wise. Yeah. So you know, she during the nineties, she goes back and tours Australia and New Zealand and makes. Wikipedia says, and and it quotes from an article that she made unprecedented levels of profit. Wow. So she she's good with money, and she's sort of tried a couple of times this new technology. But she's not convinced she sounds she's not, great, she's and not she's not convinced, convinced it's for her. But, but it takes a few years, doesn't it? it mm. it's, it's around 1903 or 04 that, that Fred and Will Geisberg actually get her. That's right, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Uh, there's a quote from Fred's memoirs. So it, it says, Melba was more than a prima donna. She was in the diva class, as we said, and well she knew it. For long she doubted or pretended to doubt our ability to reproduce her voice successfully on the wax. Overtures were started by Landon Ronald, and continued over a long period of time. A period and, of two to three years, wasn't it? Yeah, but it's early January 1904 that she, 
She consents to a gramophone test. She and agrees to a test, not to be recorded, to no, a test. a test. And this is after um, Caruso's been recorded and been very successful. Charlie Pan's yeah. Gone, yeah. gone international with records. She sets some conditions. She sets some, she sets some conditions. There are, um, hold on, one, two, three. Uh, there are three conditions, but they are pretty, pretty stringent. These are what they were. So we're early 1904. I will agree to a test, she says, but... The recording will not take place on City Road, which is, by the way, where they've just opened their new couple of years state before. State-of-the-art recording, state of the art recording studio. studio. Which is fabulous. Um, recording not to take place in City Road, but in her house in Great Cumberland Place in the West End of yeah. London. Let's, let's just put an adjective in front of house. Massive. I was going to say effing massive. <laughs> she's got a huge house in Great Cumberland Place. She's got a place. huge house in Great Cumberland Place. And she's going to need it because point two is... Because she was not to be accompanied by a piano, but by a 50-piece orchestra crammed into her sitting room because you, you could fit that into your sitting room of course why not but imagine carrying the double bass and the basil oh. anyway and the third condition that she herself would have sole determination of the results so if she didn't like them that was it game over yeah and amazingly they were so desperate to get her that they they agreed, agreed. it was like all right all right nelly yeah <laughs> let name your day yeah. There's another quote here from Fred Starr. Should I read it? So yeah. this is on the day of the recording. Our equipment was set up in the beautiful drawing room of her mansion in Great Cumberland Place. The room was filled with treasures and trophies. Landon Ronald uh, had charge of the arrangements and also conducted the orchestra of some 45 players. So yeah. 45, not So 50, we've mentioned 45. Landon before. He, he is like the musical director. He is the musical director. Fred is like director. the producer slash engineer. Exactly. Yeah. 45 players who we somehow managed to crowd into the room. Uh, the recorders were working under great disadvantages uh, and our nerves keyed up to the highest tension. I had charge of the recording. I, I was in charge of the recording and a nerve-wracking experience. I found it. He says she was a, a dominant, harsh queen. <laughs> so she was a tough cookie. When she addressed me, said Fred, she made no attempt to clothe her speech in sweetened words. She was a woman who had risen to the top of her profession by sheer driving force. Yeah, she's tough as old boots, I'm thinking, isn't she? Uh, why am I thinking Thatcher here? Maybe we've, uh, maybe we've just watched bag. The Crown. I think yeah, it was, maybe you know, a handbag, maybe a, I, I'm thinking that. A perm. And then they did the recording. And when it was over, all this effort, she said she had no desire for any of them to be published at all. No. <laughs> Again, it's a reaction, I think, to hearing... Do you, do you remember when you first heard your voice yes. recorded? You. That doesn't sound like me. No I don't one, like that. No one likes how no. they sound. They don't. No. But particularly with a brand new technology and you're a rich diva. Yeah. Yeah. You can see why she, she might have thought, oh, really? Yeah. But, so, but, so, so they've got, the, they've got, they've got some the recordings. recordings banked and yeah. she's saying no. And then Landon Ronald is sent in to try and persuade her. In fact, they, they try all sorts of different tacks to persuade her, don't they? D doesn't she agree that one of the discs, which was the Traviata one, yes. which we just heard, um, gets sent back to her dad in Australia? Is that right? That's right. And if he recognises yeah. her voice from the recording, she might consider letting them release it. It's the princess and the pea, isn't it's it? <laughs> She's just trying to be as awkward as possible. I won't send it to my agent in London. I'll send it to my father <laughs> in, in, in Mackay, in... <laughs> Central northern Queensland. And meanwhile, she goes off to perform in Monte, in Carlo, Monte Carlo. And she's there for a month, I think. And they have a, a secret tactic, which is, is our friend Sidney Dixon, Sydney. who, we, who, who we, we've mentioned before, is a good-looking chap. He, go, he goes on to actually run the gramophone company for he's a while. He's sales manager point. at this point, yes, I he's, think, he's, isn't he's, he's come on to, to sort of be sales manager in the UK, like an like a office, you know, because they, they're European offices in the UK. And he runs the UK bit of it. Yeah. So they have French managing directors, etc. He's kind of the sales slash managing director in the UK. But he's good looking. And he's all, already been used by Fred to tempt Emma Calvey into the, the disgusting studio at Maiden Lane. Which worked. Which worked. Um, so Sydney goes off to, off to Monte Carlo. Yeah, and he's he's been given a great job. You're, you've got to persuade her, and you've got to you know live high on the hog as long as it takes. Anything it doesn't matter how much money you spend. Have a month in Monte Carlo, but come back with her consent to release these records or make some more as well. So for a month, this is the this is Fred's story. For a month, Sydney courted her with flowers, speeches, and dinner parties in Monte Carlo. She still would not be convinced. Finally, she fell to a ruse. While Melville was sitting with the great composer, sorry, dining with the great composer Camille Sanson, Dixon, in the next room, played a Caruso record. Sanson was enthusiastic, which had the desired effect on Melba. 
I mean, that is that is that is a hell of a ruse, isn't it? Yeah. So and I'm going to play this. You hear it. You look enthusiastic. Surely, I mean, amazing. Yeah, and and so so Dixon's done that, but they also did a side deal with Sanson. So they said to Sanson that um, if if you would enthuse about these recordings, no. then we will do some recordings with you of you and and. Single piano music just didn't sell in those days. It didn't. It, recording a piano is one of the most difficult things you can do, and the old horns just didn't didn't pick up any of the detail of it. But they said they would put some sans on play, him playing oh the God, piano of his own composition. I mean, this is ah, this is this, there's an even greater bit of subterfuge going on in the background. But, but, but Melbourne Melbourne agreed on the back of this. No, there's looking, something else that oh, goes go on, go on, on, and go on. and and that, that's. Or so I thought. I thought that's what led to her being agreed. But then I read Peter Martland's fantastically researched book, Recording History of the British Recording Industry, 1888 to 1931. That's That's my kind of period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, in a note to it, he said, in a highly confident... So so she was no longer seeing Prince Philippe, but she wasn't shy of boyfriends. And one of her boyfriends at this time was Haddon Chambers, who's with her in Monte Carlo and actually um, came, w- was in the house in City Road w- when, she was uh, when she made the test. So Cumberland a, Place. Yeah, Cumberland Place, uh, Cumberland Place yeah, sorry. Yeah. In a highly confidential 1907 letter to Victor, Birnbaum, who was the head of, uh, well, he became head of the gramophone company for a while. I, th- I think it, And Victor uh, is the, is, is the yeah. record company. Birnbaum explained how he bribed Melba's then lover, Haddon Chambers, to persuade her to make records. In return, Chambers received, this is in the letter, quote, for obtaining articles and press notices in regard to Madame Melba's gramophone companies, that's what he billed, a £500 advance and a one shilling royalty per record sold. So he was in on the heat. And in 1907, he forced Birnbaum into a fight. So this is the letter to the board. He's explaining why he had to pay £3,750 to Haddon Chambers. It was to buy him out of his, his ongoing royalty. So th- this is really interesting because as a consequence of all of this shenanigans, whoever's persuaded a Haddon Chambers has been paid for it, Samsung for doing it, Sidney Dixon for flowers, she decides to sign the contract. Her father comes back and says, must come back and say, recognises the voice. Recognises the voice. She signs the deal. But this is her deal. Yeah. £1,000 up front. Just compare it to um, Haddon Chambers' deal, who gets £500 up front. She gets a royalty of five shillings per record. Her records are going to be sold at one guinea. So it's the highest price of any records that the gramophone company put out. That's a pound and a shilling. Yeah. She gets five shillings. And, and they're, they're actually sold to trade at 14 shillings. So she's getting a huge royalty. But he gets the shilling. So he's, he's getting very similar they must rates been, to an, a, a superstar. They must have been so desperate to get her. Yeah. Doesn't she also demand that she has her own coloured label of she stamp on the middle of the disc? Of course disc? she does. So, so pale mauve, pale mauve. So she has uh, she has her own disc. Yeah, all this money, higher price. But but wasn't there another wrinkle before this? She said to Fred, "Play one of my recordings at a reception for the press. This is back in 1904, and see their reaction. If they like it, I'll let the orchestra back in for this second deal." Yeah, yeah. I, so so she's. Su- I, I guess what she's got there, because that, that she that's in um, in October. In May she signed a deal, but I bet she's got right of release. Yeah, yeah. So she's made the record. She signed a deal, but she's not still not releasing these records. So she invites some journalists in she to have a listen. Some journalists, and in. there's a, there's a lovely description, isn't and it's there, by she? a journalist, a music journalist. Yeah, you're a music journalist. You should read. Yeah, so here we go. So, but she's recording. She, she's recording at City Road this time. This is the second batch, isn't it? She's not in her house. Is that right? She's recording in City Road, which is the gramophone company's state-of-the-art studio. Yes. Um, and she invites the press. And this is a description. We'll play some music after this. This is a description um, by one of the uh, one of the hacks who's there, and it just kind of gives the it gives the a really good impression of of what's going on, really. Yeah. We are waiting, this is the journalist, but we're waiting in a small room at the top of an office in the city road. We look out of the windows into a yellow fog, which has been uh, dripping telegraph wires and drenching roofs that morning. The room is lighted by green shaded uh, electric lights hanging from the ceiling. It is carpeted and palms are arranged behind a table set with a decanter and glasses. 
But obviously, this is a place of business, a little chamber of commerce. From one of the walls, a mere partition of white wood and frosted glass projects a trumpet. So this is the recording hall. They're actually yeah. in the studio. Yeah. Now, carpeted, lights, In the live rooms. In so the live That's room. the room where the performers go. And compared to the grimy Maiden Lane, yeah. this is quite something. I um, love the table set with the decanter and glasses. So, yes, just to, And the know. pot plant. On one side of the trumpet is a piano dizzy on a tall, rough wooden stand. Today, we are waiting for Melba and Kubelik. Now, Kubelik's the violinist, violinist I think, yeah. who's accompanying her. Uh, the chairman and the manager of the company here, blah, 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 blah. Enter Kubelik. So thin, so slight, so serious. There are prim greetings for a few minutes, and then, in a sudden rush, bringing merriment and fresh air with her, Melba enters. Melba, who can make uh, honey vocal and waterfalls articulate. Brilliant. Charming and delightful Melba. And we're all laughing and talking in the best of spirits. Uh, Kubelik then opens his his violin case, gets his instrument out. Melba goes to the trumpet. The chamber of commerce is suddenly silent. Then from behind the frosted glass... But, but I love this. There's a crowd of people in the room with her. Yeah. From behind the frosted glass, an, an electric bell rings a sharp summons. The accompanist strikes the first chords of Ave Maria, and in another minute, Melba is heard singing. She stands with her back to us, her hands clasped in front of her, her lips a few inches from the trumpet. Behind the frosted glass which is cloudily luminous with electric light. The shadows of the operators pass as Melba sings. That's a wonderful image. So they can see her, and behind this glass, the the arms of the conductor moving and all the instruments going. One wonders, and this this is kind of weirdly prescient and a bit strange. One wonders, said the journalist in 1904, who will be listening to this music 100, 200, 500 years hence? In the Venice, Paris, Berlin, and New York of that far day, people with a knowledge at which we cannot guess, with an outlook which we cannot understand, will be listening to the charm of this song, even as we are now listening in a London office. Melba and Melba's, Melba's life story will seem to them an ancient tale. Yep. Yeah, um, we, we are. We're Kublik's toil just... and triumph will mean nothing to them, but the voice of the one and the violin of the other will be as real and as gracious then as they are to us now. That's lovely. Should we hear some, should we hear some Melba? Yes, please. I think this is a recording that was made that day. Ave Maria. That's actually quite moving, given what that journalist said. You know, who will be listening to this in a hundred in a hundred years hence? I mean, he could have no conception that we'd be sitting here in a you know, a hundred and sixteen years later. Yeah, talking about in our own recording in studio our own that recording we can studio. fit in a pocket. We can we can fit <laughs> in a pocket. And yes, we have no conception of of their world, and they have none of ours. But um, it's I think it's, yeah. it's 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 very moving. You know. The voice is as real and, and as gracious then as it is now, he said. And it is as gracious mm. now as it was then. I mean, it really is. Mm. It's beautiful. Really beautiful. However, that didn't stop her being very difficult, no. did it? But it was interesting. You know, they, they are hits. I've got a very, a very, it had a strange effect on her, um, which this is from Melba's own diaries. One of the most curious features which the gramophone brought into my life was a succession of marriage proposals from people who had heard my records, but never seen me. There was something almost uncanny in the idea of some man in the remote prairies sitting down in front of a little instrument, listening to the echo of my voice, feeling that he'd found the ideal woman, and writing to tell her so. Wow. Isn't that funny? That she, And I, I think we should qualify how old she is at this point. She's 43 when she made that record. So her voice is past its peak, do we think? I mean, what's... I, I don't know. I mean, she's in the middle of a career. She's the career extends for another ten years. Should we ask Michael Volpe? Yeah, let's do that. Mm-hmm. 
we're joined by Michael Volpe, the founder and uh, the recently retired general director of Opera Holland Park. And Michael. he absolutely doesn't look old enough to Stop have recently retired. It's getting... You can say that as many times as you like. <laughs> I will never get He's bored. The boyish, the, the roughly boyish. The, the, the boyish Michael Volpe. So, so um, Nanny Melbourne, was she more than just a competent light soprano, in your opinion? I'd say so. I mean, she does, she does on these recordings, she does sound like a bit of a songbird. You know, it's... And again, I, I go back to this element that there is so little dynamic range in 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 these recordings. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the qualities that her voice yeah. has, I mean, she does have a remarkable clarity in the higher register of yeah. her voice. I mean, it's it's it, even on these recordings that's inescapable. In the Traviata recording, there's some very beautiful lines. And she's got that nice trill, which mm-hmm. is the modulation between the notes. She's definitely, uh, on these recordings at least, less comfortable in the lower part of her voice. Okay. But when tossing off those top notes, she's obviously having a ball, you know, and she knows that she can toss them off with some abandon and ease, um, if that doesn't sound too rude. <laughs> hmm. uh, although there were rumors, of course. Um, yes. Again, it takes a few listens. I think, to understand what you're hearing yeah. with these old recordings. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting to note that our own first impressions of these were that she didn't like them. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, until she realized she could make some money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. Uh, so, and it's a definitely a voice I'd love to have heard in, in the flesh. In the flesh. Yeah. I mean, she, she, there's all this talk of her personal charm and that um, she, she had it for certain roles. I wondered, from, from your perspective, how much is having personal charm as a, as a performer as an opera singer how much is that important in the journey to making it as a yeah star? it's a it's a really good question and it and it's a it's a principle that's much more established now yeah but equally is quite easily jettisoned in certain circumstances so for example today's singers who have a stage presence and have what you would call charm you know are really highly prized and praised yeah uh, and, and, you know, we've all seen singers on stage who you literally can't take your eyes off. You know, they could be singing like a drain, but they still are entirely captivating. And that's become super important in modern opera production. Now, you, the stand and deliver, you know, we used to roll them on on a sack, sack trolley and <laughs> let them sing and then roll them off again. Yeah. I've gone. Right. And back, at, and back in Melba's day, anyone with that, charm to interpret and bring would have would have been quite noticeable probably and today i think it's vital for many audience members that you have that you i mean charm is there is the old word i think what you mean is a stage presence presence, and and a way of interpreting it's singers who have the vocal chop as well as the ability to submit themselves to a role and expose their inner emotions they they kind of represent a cracking package was pavarotti for example no a crack- no okay. pavarotti i remember rosalind plowright telling me a story she used to sing on the big world stages and she did various productions with pavarotti and she was told me it was once she was sort of you know singing tosca and he was the cabaret and she was literally sort of having to walk around him and sort of get his attention you know so look i'm here too we can sing together you know so it, but but everyone forgave him because of that voice. Yeah. yeah. And that I think is, is, you know, part of the problem is that you, um, a lot of audiences will still say, look, you know, all these more productions, we don't want all this nonsense, just sing. Close my eyes. I want to hear the singing. Well, I think most people want more than that from their opera. Yes. You clearly want the singer to have the fabulous voice, but you, you equally don't want just the fabulous voice. And a really dreary performance, you know. And it works the other way as well. I mean, Callas, I mean, Callas is held up as one of the great legends of the opera world, but you know, she could make some bloody awful noises on stage. And if you listen to those, that really classic recording of a Tosca, Mm. uh, God, there was, what on earth was that sound, you know? But she was so captivating and so utterly driven yeah. and inside the role that those noises were visceral themselves and I, and you forgive you know kind of technical in, inaccuracies for in singers all the time you know but you, perhaps harder to forgive them when you're just listening because you can't see them and you can't absolutely. see them absolutely and that's why a recording won't 
you know, I mean, if a singer sings in a certain way and that's how they sing and it's technically correct, but you still find it awful, then that's all there is to it. You know, it's a matter of personal taste. You wouldn't necessarily let a, a bum note go through, but that bum note won't matter so much when she's really viciously stabbing Scarpia. You know, you don't really care because it's an enormously dramatic moment on stage. And I think that's, you know, recordings have always had, I mean, it's, we always argue this when people come and they say, oh, I didn't like the production very much. Well, yeah, but, you, you know, you can sit at home and listen to the perfect recording that you, you've always listened to. And that's fine. But that's not why you're in the theatre. So, you know, there's that balance. So I, in answer to your question, yes, I think it's, it is important for a singer to have something you know, something that is watchable. So that, that that's the, the the story of the first visit to um, City Road. City there Road. is a second visit um, a year later in September 1905, which I think is just it's brilliant. It's, again, it's another example of her. Beautiful diva behaviour. So this, 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 yeah, nineteen oh five. So, so she's sold incredibly well, hasn't yeah. she? And she arrives in a Daimler. Now, would that be a motorised? That would be a motor car. Yeah, nineteen oh five. So it's a, be a, proper, it's a yeah. big fancy German car. Yes, da- a, a, a Daimler British Daimler? car. German. German. American. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, big. a car. It's big. big. A, a yeah. big car. She, so she arrives at City Road with her attendants. Notice what are the names in here still? Landon Ronald, Ben Berg. Haddon, Haddon Chambers. Chambers. Brackets, the writer then in high favour with Melbourne. Yeah, he was a playwright. And someone called Mademoiselle... Um, Sassol. Sassol, who's her secretary. This is Fred's diary. There was the youngest, prettiest... Uh, sorry, the youngest typist, prettily dressed, to hand the diva a five-guinea bouquet of roses. The directors, headed by Sidney Dixon in striped trousers, white spats, white waistcoat, cutaway black coat squeaky patent leather boots that seemed to pinch as they danced in attendance on her ladyship as she cracked the whip with baleful glee. I mean, that's quite quite a description, isn't it? My recording studio was on the top floor, but the lift would stop first on the second floor where a long table was set up in the boardroom laden with good things to eat. Here, light refreshments, including the ubiquitous champagne, were partaken of, and then the artist was sent up to the top to the studio where I'd be anxiously waiting to get on with the job of making records. No easy task under these conditions in a cramped room. No. I love it that they had a champagne stop. So they, they stop off for a bit of champagne and, and some smoked salmon. But it's and quite self-aware of Fred to call it the ubiquitous champagne because yeah. normally he's just quaffing it himself and yeah. he's kind of take a step back. Do you and, think he's a bit... He's professional working, so he's not having any. He's a little bit Maybe annoyed. that's it. Maybe he's, got, he's also a bit older now. The carousing yeah. days might be. Um, and she has a trio of male backing singers. Yeah. Who are all, all significant singers in their own right. They all record for the um, gramophone company. Uh, there, but he's, Fred's called, brought them back. He's brought, brought, he's brought them back yeah. to be her. There's a guy called Ernest Pike, uh, who's a tenor. A sweet-voiced but simple-minded tenor. The son of a baker from Sandringham House. Of course. Apparently he'd once been commanded to sing for the royal family and would never let anyone forget it. Brilliant. <laughs> he attempted Ernest Pike, big mistake, he attempted to pal up with Melba. You know, all right, how you doing? And he was met with a withering comment. You're one of the bloody chorus? <laughs> That's very good. That's my Australian. You're one of the bloody chorus. Um, there's another one called Peter Dawson. And Peter Dawson. We've heard of Peter Dawson. Yeah, Do- Peter know, Dawson a- went on to do the, um, the, the Scotch... Uh, character and had huge hits or even yes, loads the, and loads of hits. The for, phony Scott, yeah, wasn't he? The, yeah, yeah. And he went up to her or, or, or he started talking to her and she turned to him and said, you're from Australia. You're from Australia? He answered, yes, ma'am. She said, which city? He said, Melbourne. And ah, she said, no, that's a misquote. He said, he must have said Adelaide because that's where he's from. But it says right here, Melbourne. Yeah, no, I've that, researched it. That quote's wrong. That uh, quote is wrong. Because she's from Melbourne. And well, she, exactly. this is her having a go at Adelaide, where he's from. Because her retort is... What? That town of Parsons pubs and prostitutes? I sound like Dave <laughs> You do. It's very good. Um, um, so, yeah. <laughs> and that, again, more successful records went on to sell, sell very, very well. 1907, when the... Gramphone Company had outgrown City, City Road. Road. They move again. They, they move again to Hayes in, in Middlesex. They built this fantastic, what we would call a campus today, with factories and recording yeah. studios. And in 1907, they opened the Hayes Recording Studio. 
Actually, I think they opened the site. The this site, is, she, laid, the, she yes. lays the brick to open the site, and there is a fantastic photograph of her in her finery. Now, in 1907, she is 47. Okay. I think she's 47 at this point. 46. 46. 46, coming up for 47. And... Um, do you want to describe it? We'll put this picture on the website. Well, it's she's there. She she's there are lots of suits, and she's there standing outside a kind of almost a sort of Indian style marquee with lots of um, awnings, and and she's wearing it's probably a fur, isn't it? A fur stole, yeah, that goes from one foot up round her neck and then back down to like white. Could it be mink? A huge hat. A massive bunch of flowers. She's quite a thick-set lady, isn't she? Yeah, and she looks very Victorian. She looks very the rest Victorian. of them look sort of Edwardian yes, gentlemen. at least a bit modern. She and, is... and they're all kind of trim-looking gentlemen, and she's quite biggish. She's wearing... Big hats, big Everything lace, about her is big fur. and domineering and a little bit scary. Yeah. Is that fair enough? Stern. Stern. She, she's certainly not smiling in this picture. She looks like she's got sharp elbows. And she's surrounded by people who look like they're very... They're attending to her every need, and she's on a red carpet. Yeah, obviously, obviously. But she, her fame—the records help her fame. She does live broadcasts on the radio, which were, you know, when it started. Which she, yeah, she, she, she actually embraced technology quite well from that point. So in the early twenties, she's uh, one of the first recordings of a, a significant um, uh, musician, and then, and then, very interestingly, she. she apparently, she had more fare. You know, like we have an expression: more farewells than Sinatra. Yeah. Um, yeah. she had the, Austra- the Australians said that she had more farewells than Nel- Melba because she Brilliant. she retired many many times, but she finally made her last performance in Covent Garden in nineteen twenty twenty six, and she'd been recording for the company right up until this time. So hadn't twenty two twenty twenty two years. years after, and it was it but was the, broadcast live, wasn't yeah. it? Well, it, it's it's interesting. No, it, it wasn't broadcast. Sorry, live, it was actually. recorded live. It was then recorded broadcast. live, and it, I've, I've been reading around this, and it was recorded. It was it was one of the very first ever to be recorded using an electric microphone, which came in 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 the early twenties, yeah. down a telephone line. So they were at Covent Garden, but the actual recording studio was in Gloucester Gloucester House. And Gloucester House is just north of Manchester Square, so sort of okay, it's kind north of, of Bond Street, yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. kind of area. And they took it down a phone line and, they recorded, and recorded it to the... So the cutting lathes, which were in Gloucester House. That's amazing. And, and they released it. Apparently it was speeches and songs, and it was a number of discs that went out in a box set and was a big hit. So in 20 years, we'd gone from singing into a horn and it recording, it scratching onto a, onto a master disc without electricity to... Her singing into a microphone on a stage, what is it, a mile, mile and a bit, probably? Yeah, yeah, yeah a mile. And it being yeah. recorded, that is a, that is a huge, huge leap, t- isn't it? Yeah, and it's, it's bringing together telepho- telephony. Yeah, cult- electricity. Electricity, and, cause that's got the microphone. Bit. Yeah. It's still cutting, it's still cutting in an old fashioned yeah, way. It's, it's, you've into still got a, 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 a cutting stylus. Yeah. Um, that cuts into over a, disc. a revolving disc. Yeah. But still, that's a massive leap, isn't it? Amazing. But, wow. But, that, but that's her, you know, she, she's managed to keep her career going brilliantly. You know, we, we, one of the stories in, in this, um, series is about Emma Calvey. And yeah. she's very much a, a rags to riches to rags story. But Melba hangs on to a loot. Riches to and, riches. and, and she keeps money all over the place. She raises a phenomenal amount of money for various charities during the First World War. And that's, the reason she gets made a dame of the British Empire. In 1918. Yeah. And then she keeps touring, not necessarily playing parts in operas, but playing her greatest doing hits. doing concerts, yeah. Yeah, well into the mid-twenties. She sets up a school for teaching young up-and-coming singers. She's on an Australian $100 bill. Yeah. Her face. Absolutely. I mean, she's still, you know, the names of streets and... Um, There's a street in San Francisco, apparently, and yeah. a concert hall in, in Melbourne. yeah. Should we hear? Should we hear a recording from June nineteen twenty six, which I imagine is from th- this Common Garden? Yeah, it must um, be. It that, must that, be. Eighth uh, of June. This is her farewell concert. This is her farewell concert. Already, the quality of sound from the electrical recording is noticeable. It is, isn't it? Carry me home, low, carry on. Come in for the carry. 
that was obviously swing low sweet chariot dave and i were kind of listening to that with our mouths wide open because the the quality of that recording yeah. and you could hear the pronunciation in her words which you couldn't hear in the previous ones no i mean that, that was crystal clear compared to what we heard earlier yeah that's the it? power of the the electric microphone i think yes well absolutely even um, if it's been sent a mile well exactly and that was recorded remotely yeah how amazing so here we are what else do we know about mother there's a blue plaque outside a house that she used to live in in kingston upon thames that's right yeah um her death and funeral were, were, were global news and her her legacy kind of lives on in in many ways doesn't it yeah so that's nelly melba dave anything to finish up with yeah i mean i i, I do think it's worth pointing out the, the the significance of her um of her funeral she died in in 1931 aged 69 and she was given an absolute elaborate funeral in in melbourne at scott's church which is um quite a sort of landmark there which her father had built so it's quite oh, okay, a quite a nice that. end end to it yeah. and she'd sung there as a teenager in the choir so it was, it was a sort of coming home but this is interesting the funeral motorcade so we, we you know we're in the, the days of telephones and cars yeah. good and proper yeah. by the 1930s was over a kilometer long <laughs> and her death made front page headlines all over the world all over the world billboards in in many countries there's a famous one on the evening standard that just says melba is dead melba is toast <laughs> i should have said melba is toast um and then it was it was filmed so if you look on the the old youtube you can see melba's funeral oh, um, we'll put that on the website yeah, yeah. Her, her headstone designed designed of course by sir edward lutyens of who did the set the um memorial at the cenotaph and half of delhi yeah, yeah. and half of <laughs> delhi bears the farewell words of mimi and la boheme um, which is adios senza rancor farewell without bitterness farewell without bitterness. and there is a bust of melba isn't isn't there ah that's that's there's only two singers that are featured at the royal opera house they have busts and the they royal have busts. Opera house. one is nelly melba and one is adelina patty who we might be hearing about in the next episode yes we certainly might be so um thank you very much for listening should we have another blast of melba yes um that'd, be, that'd be peachy <laughs> This is called Old Folks at Home. And if you can do the toast one, I'll do the peachy one. <laughs> September 1905. <laughs> The Sound of the Hound was edited by Andy Hetherington. For more details on the topics discussed in this episode, visit soundofthehound.com or follow us on Twitter on at the sound of the H1 or on Instagram on the sound of the hound.